Hello and welcome to another edition of Across the States, the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, Beth Fisher, and today we have some special guests discussing healthcare policy and more. Joining us is Mike McKinnon, professor at National University, owner of McKinnon Anesthesia Consulting. Mike, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited it's to be fantastic. here. It's fantastic to have you with us today on Across the States. And also joining us is Jenny Schmidt, Government Relations Chair for the Oklahoma Association of Nurse Anesthetists, and also a member of the Board of Directors for the American Association of Nurses Anesthesiology is Jenny Schmidt. Welcome, Jenny. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. It's great to have you on. And finally, one of my favorite task force directors joining us, the biggest super fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide that I know, and that's saying something, the great Brooklyn Roberts. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, too. It's a little painful for me. I am from Cincinnati. But <laughs> you guys, it's always fun to have you on the show with us, especially the topics and guests you bring on. And I'm looking forward to this discussion a great deal. So let's kick things off today um, with a question to you, Jenny. Now, obviously, you work in many organizations vital to the subject. And what, I think the question that a lot of us we want to discuss first are, what are certified nurse anesthetists and what role do they play in the healthcare marketplace and the access they create? Well, okay, so certified registered nurse anesthetists, or um, as uh, we like to call nurse anesthesiologists, are advanced practice registered nurses who provide anesthesia. And so we are trained in critical care. Um, we are ICU nurses. We have doctoral degrees. Uh, you find us in all sorts of places. You find us in hospitals. You find us in surgery centers. You find us in dental offices. You find us in rural America. And you find us in urban centers. So we uh, are pretty much, if you, you are having surgery or some kind of procedure where you need to be asleep or not feel pain, you're going to experience uh, probably coming across a nurse anesthetist. And, you know, I think it's great that you guys are having us on to educate your members because really, if we're doing a good job, you uh, don't really remember us and aren't going to remember who we are. And so that's why we want to come on today to talk to you to really um, educate people about the value that we bring in this uh, healthcare field and uh, what we do. And I know um, Mike is also very passionate about uh, educating people. So the, the great thing about us, so uh, we are nurses first. So when we practice anesthesia, we are practicing nursing. Um, so we will have bachelor's degree in nursing. And then we go and we have to have uh, three to five years of ICU experience before we are allowed to apply to our doctoral uh, programs. You know, Mike can probably speak more to this because he is adjunct faculty at National University and he is a program um, faculty. So uh, Mike, I, he can probably chime in a little bit more on, you know, what it takes to make a nurse anesthetist on the training. And then I can chime in more about, you know, uh, the practice of where and who we are and how you, where you find us. Sure, I can add a little information there. So essentially you've got RNs, you know, the most trusted healthcare providers ever. <laughs> and uh, there are people who've got a lot of experience that end up deciding they wanna do something more, expanding their practice, expanding access to care, um, providing cost-effective anesthesia services all over the country. Come to programs like mine, where we uh, look for people that are critical thinkers, hard workers, and uh, want, to, want to do all those things. And then we train them for three years 
um, which is pretty intensive. Every kind of modality you can imagine. If you're getting a shoulder surgery, we teach them how to do ultrasound guided blocks. If uh, you're having a baby, we teach them how to do labor epidurals or C-sections. We teach them how to do spinals and manage every kind of complication you can imagine. So they're fully prepared, full service providers capable of uh, everything that our physician anesthesiologists are capable of and providing it in 90% of the rural areas and most of our military. So uh, we're uh, definitely all over the place. And certainly Jenny was right. <laughs> if we're doing our job well, you won't remember us, except for an OB, those people remember us. <laughs> yeah. And certainly any, any memory I feel like if you're in surgery and if any memory pertaining to an anesthesiologist is probably not a good one if they remember the surgery. It's probably a painful memory, but obviously yeah. the service provided is so vital, especially for those going through surgery. Mm -hmm. I myself have had two, one on my knee and my ankle. Um, but mm -hmm. public politicians oftentimes will pay attention to this area, Mike. And why should public uh, lawmakers, public service legislators, why should they care about anesthesia access? And what happens when anesthesia desert exists? What happens when there's not enough of a focus or effort put into ensuring that this is accessible to all? Well, that's a great question. I think that the reason why legislators should care is that their constituents are all going to be just like you requiring surgery at some point in time. And of course, constituents for legislators can live in urban areas or rural areas. And what we want is there to be an affordable access to care for anesthesia services, because without anesthesia services, you can't have surgical services. And from a cost perspective nature, you know, facilities, the economic engine of a, of a facility, be it a rural critical access hospital in Oklahoma or a large uh, city center in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, is the operating room. So that's where the, that's where the uh, revenue is generated, which maintains all the other services, the cancer center, the specialists, all those things. And uh, so it really matters, I think, from a healthcare perspective, you know, you got to think about the people who live where I do in rural Arizona, we're three hours from Phoenix. If they didn't have anesthesia services here, didn't have surgical services here, you know, are they going to drive three hours? Some of those people simply don't have the ride. So don't have the money. It's it's, I think it's incumbent upon us as a society to help maintain those anesthesia services. So when there's not anesthesia services, you know, in a rural area, if CRNAs were not able to work to full scope of practice independently as we do, and as the company I own does, um, there wouldn't be services here at all because there, there are no physician anesthesiologists in these rural areas. And uh, that's part of the issue with access, right? So we, we create access in a cost-effective manner, effectively. And something I would uh, kind of just like to add to that is that um, something unique for nurse anesthetists and nurse anesthesiologists that um, we bring to rural America and that I know is something very important to your policymakers and decision makers is that we always talk about critical access hospitals in rural America and how those are such a vital lifeblood of rural communities and just the economic impact they have on some of those small town America. And when it comes to critical access hospitals, you know, certified registered nurse anesthetists are the um, actually the sole anesthesia provider that the federal government will uh, allow funding for to provide uh, anesthesia services at those facilities. And it allows for them to, like Mike was saying, provide those um, obstetrical services because uh, we do provide those labor epidurals. We do provide general anesthesia services. So if somebody has to have their gallbladder out or have their appendix removed or you're 
child falls down and breaks their arm and, you know, they need to have that. So um, those critical access hospitals that you're, uh, you know, you hear legislators talk about all the time, we don't want to see those closing and, you know, their rural health associations talk about, uh, you'll see a CRNA is the provider. And typically there's one, maybe two in each of them across, you know, I think we have 43 in Oklahoma and um, they're very, very important to America. And, you know, we want to make sure that those stay open and they do that by generating revenue through surgery. So it's, uh, it's an important role that we play, a role that a lot of people don't know about. And so it's something that I wanted to make sure that we brought attention to. Jenny, um, when state regulators and, and policymakers impose excessive barriers to entry um, for certain types of providers, CRNAs, for example, mm-hmm. uh, they're often not responding to legitimate consumer concerns um, or, or safety concerns. Is there a risk that when you have providers with overlapping skill sets, um, you know, that you'll get some um, competition there in terms of, of, of regulating the other out? So I... Um spent a lot of my uh, career uh, in advocacy work. In the state of Oklahoma, I worked a lot with the state legislature here, and um, we removed supervision from state statute because we found that it made it difficult. Um, It allowed more choice, more competition for our hospitals to be able to choose the models that they wanted to and kind of just eliminated some of the unnecessary burdens that uh, hospitals had to to um, deal with. And we saw that during COVID, right? One of the first things that uh, President Trump did in April of 2020, when they're looking at like, how do we, you know, make it easier for hospitals to respond to a pandemic was, well, they federally waived supervision for nurse anesthetists at the federal level, right? And so that that waiver to remove supervision for nurse anesthetists and removing some of those regulations at the federal level is still in place actually two years later still. It's uh, May of 2022. And this emergency waiver from um, April of 2020 for COVID is still being extended because they've seen that when we remove barriers, when we decrease that red tape regulation, increase choice competition, and we allow hospitals to choose because we know, you know, I live in Oklahoma City. What works in Oklahoma City might not be what works best out in Guymon, out in the panhandle. And so we know that those individual hospital CEOs, you know, these hospitals have medical boards with physicians that know their communities. They know the people that live in those towns. You know, legislators know those hospital CEOs. They're going to know those communities, what those hospitals can provide. And so they need to be able to have the choices that are going to best serve those communities. So by deregulating and removing barriers, you can respond better, right? And we saw that in COVID. Well, then before COVID happened, you know, we in Oklahoma had already removed those barriers, which is great because we saw that in the United States military, those barriers weren't there. And we're like, well, if it's good enough for the military, why is it not good enough for the people of Oklahoma? If it's good enough for the military, why is it not good enough for, you know, and then we started to look around. We realized that there were 40 other states that didn't have the supervised, you know, language in their state statute. And we go, what, what if we start to remove some of these things and finding out that a lot of time when you have two providers who are competing in the same place in the market, 
if they can use the state legislature as a place to insulate themselves from competition, what it does is it restricts one practice and allows the other one to flourish. And we know anytime you do that, when you have anti-competitive practice in place in any industry, whether it's healthcare, the energy sector, any industry, you know, that's going to drive costs up. And we're in a situation now where our hospitals are not in a position to where they can afford to have increased costs, right? And most of them are operating in the red. And so we need to give them flexibility to meet the demands. And we're going to have more patients just influxed into the system. And so this just kind of allows them to use the workforce that they have to have that mobility. I know I got long-winded there, but, you know, I don't know if Mike wants to... (laughs) You can't tell I'm not passionate about this issue at all. Right. <laughs> Brooklyn, what, what I hear you saying is that, uh, you know, is there the possibility for another group to utilize statute and rule to impede the free market? And the fact of the matter is, is that's true. Right. I mean, that happens in every industry. We all know it. We all see it. And it's not it's not some secret that if I can, if, you know, if one group can stop their competition from being there, then they've got a better opportunity to make more money. Right. I mean, that's where the focus then lies. The reality is, is that's not always what's good for patients. And so if you can eliminate barriers that allow the free market to work the way it should, then what you end up with is more competition, more access, lower costs. And and the truth is, is it's in all our best interest to remove those barriers, things that impede competition, regulations that don't make sense, that aren't based in evidence to allow for those kind of practices to flourish. That's what serves the populace, not overregulation and and silly rules that don't at all help the free market. I mean, that's the bottom line. Right. Um, Mike, can you, I mean, you've already kind of talked a little bit around it, but can you clarify, explain how, you know, providers like CNRNAs can actually save money? In low well, sure, that, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, you know, there's lots of ways that CRNAs save money. And I don't want, nothing I have to say is to take away from our physician anesthesiologist colleagues. Highly trained individuals do a great job at anesthesia. Have nothing negative to say about them. Lots of them are some of my best friends. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the physician anesthesiologist residencies and the medical education is all entirely government funded and subsidized, right? GME money, graduate medical education money pays for their residency. So while they're in training and while they're in medical school, our tax money is helping to pay for them to get through. Well, CRNAs pay for our own education. So there's an immediate cost savings from the tax base right there. Uh, And then about two, one and a half CRNAs can be trained for every one physician anesthesiologist. So we graduate more faster with the same outcomes. So less cost to the system overall. On top of that, there's the cost of subsidy. As a CRNA, my expectation for salary is pretty high. I'm important, (laughs) but I'm not (laughs) expecting the same level of pay maybe as a physician anesthesiologist in downtown Phoenix, Arizona expects. And so when I go to negotiate contracts, which we have contracts at critical access hospitals and community hospitals, and I negotiate those contracts, then I'm looking for a partnership with those facilities. I want them to flourish because all boats rise with with the rising tide, right? If I if I go asking for way too much money, they can't provide services, I won't have a job, the community suffers. There's no win, right? So we look for a much more of a partnership opportunity 
And by that, I mean, I'm not asking for subsidies or the subsidies I'm asking for are extraordinarily low in comparison to that required to sustain physician anesthesiologists involved practice. So that's another cost saving measure. In addition to those two things, I think the other cost saving side of it is that, um, you know, you don't have that expectation of, of larger, maybe I hate to say it this way, but benefits that that I wouldn't expect, those are additional costs. Like you know, and, and so we we have a much more reasonable, I think, in general, expectation of salary for what for the services that we're providing in rural areas. I think because we're more in touch with the needs of the community and the hospital in that regard. So I think those are where the primary cost savings really are with anesthesia services. And looking at the issues overall here, um, obviously it pertains a lot to the rural mar rural marketplaces, rural communities, how it really would impact them. Um, I know a lot of our members here at ALEC are concerned about those in our military, our veterans, our active duty servicemen, women. Um, how would CRNAs impact the veterans, uh, care for veterans returning from war, as well as those who are you know, recovering from the wounds of it? Like, how would that impact their care and coverage? How would it positively improve their own access to uh, the services and care that they not only need, but we owe to them for their service. Right, well, you know, I'm very passionate about this issue for a couple of reasons, mainly because, you know, my younger brother is uh, active duty in the Navy. And so I wanna know that if he is deployed and he is injured, that not only is he gonna receive really great care while he's active duty, but, you know, once he is, you know, a veteran that he's going to be able to get timely access to anesthesia care. Um, we currently have over a thousand CRNAs that serve in the VAs across the country, you know, and so we have CRNAs that are providing great anesthesia care to our nation's veterans. So the thing of it is, is that right now, um, like we said, in the United States military on the front lines in forward operating bases, serving our uh, United States military CRNAs, provide anesthesia unsupervised independently um, and they are trusted in the most austere environments. We actually have a member of my Oklahoma board. Um, she is currently with a special forces team and a trauma surgeon deployed in, I can't say where, um, but she is out of country. Just her and a medic and that trauma surgeon, right? That is what CRNAs do. But unfortunately, you know, when you come back here, you know, that is a. I'm glad you asked that question. You know, there is there are some barriers still in the VA, and we find that we know that sometimes government-run healthcare isn't as good. We know that when you have more private, um, uh, in you know, businesses are able to do things a little bit more faster and more efficient because there is less regulations and burdens. And so when you have government run healthcare, there is sometimes delays. And we saw that in the VA. Um, and I've seen that where veterans will go out and purchase their own health insurance so that they can get surgery done sooner. They have an injury on the battlefield and they're disabled and they have to go through all of these processes just to get the x-ray, to get the MRI, just to get the knee scope, to get the surgery. And it's, um, it's unfortunate that the heroes of our country, you know, have to go through these waiting periods to have these surgeries that they need. Um, so there are barriers. I think that, you know, the VA is an area where we could do such better 
um, services for our veterans. And I, I've actually, I call it the veteran experience from start to finish, that they should not have anything that slows down their recovery from injury to recovery. We should make sure that they of all people, because they stand on the front lines providing, you know, protections for our freedoms, that of anyone, they should have the best health care in the country. Um, but for some reason, we seem to drop the ball a lot when it comes to them. So um, one of the things that they, you know, uh, one of those barriers is that CRNAs um, are restricted in the VA still. Uh, Mike probably has some things he'd like to add about that. I'm getting long winded again. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that the the big picture here is that we have a moral and ethical duty to those who serve our country. That's a bottom line, right? And, and I think there's not an American in the country who doesn't feel that obligation to our veterans and feel some degree of secondary pain when you know that someone's not getting what they were promised. Uh, the veterans, the veterans affairs is the largest healthcare system in the world. It's not small. And so, you know, Unfortunately, there's inefficiencies involved there. And some of those inefficiencies are, you know, political in nature. And that that's a personal politic or professional politic that's stopping APRNs or nurse practitioners or CRNAs like us from performing the services that are needed to expand that access to care to veterans and facilities. There are veterans affairs hospitals today where there's one physician anesthesiologist and one CRNA doing one case. I mean, it couldn't be more efficient than that, inefficient than that, right? right? So removing those barriers and letting local control make the determination, let the facilities decide what they need. Do they need an efficient physician anesthesiologist or do they need a CRNA or do they need a mix? Let them decide. That's cost effective and it expands that access to care and helps meet at least our piece of the pie that our veterans deserve. Definitely. Well, Before so we go, oh, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to try to say there for your members to, that are listening is that what what we want you to take away there is that we don't want to ever eliminate anesthesiologists from the VA system. What we're saying is, is that if you have two anesthesia providers in one room and a veteran is having to wait to have surgery, we're saying that then open up that other room and put an anesthesia provider in both rooms because a veteran should never have to wait because we have two people in a room. That's what we're saying. Right. That's, that's right? all. Really Is that a good way to say it, Mike? Yeah, I agree. Brooklyn, do you have any uh, questions before I uh, wrap us up with a one final uh, inquiry? Um, Jenny, did you want to talk a little bit about what happened in, in Utah with the anesthesiologist assistants? You know, I think that would be a great conversation because actually uh, Mike McKinnon, we're very fortunate, is uh, one of the nations, in my opinion, experts on anesthesiologist assistance. I think that um, we didn't have a lot of time in Utah to really get to truly educate on uh, what exactly they are and what they do. And I think I would love an opportunity to kind of talk about what happened in Utah so that way, when these issues come up in the future, we kind of have a better um, opportunity to educate people about about this issue. Brooklyn yeah, was very involved with that, so she could act, she could kind of <laughs> key that up. Well, Love it. Uh, Alec, you know, is is in general, it's based on free market principles, and um, we are normally in favor of removing barriers to entry and new pathways to licensing. <laughs> Um, this was a little bit of a strange situation for us. So I wanted you guys to explain kind of what happened and, and um, 
what the particulars were and why in this particular case, it wasn't, you know, a good way to save money. Sure. I mean, I think I think the first thing you have to understand is is what an anesthesiologist assistant is. They're people who, you know, went and did an undergrad degree and then did uh, a few years to become an anesthesiologist assistant, and they directly work with physician anesthesiologists only. They can't work independently. They can't expand, open another room. They have to work within a limited model only under a physician anesthesiologist, no other physician. And so um, part of the problem there is that they really don't expand access to care in a real way. And it's in the second most expensive model. Physician only would be the most expensive. That'd be the second most expensive. You know, I'm a free market guy. I always have been. And I'm all about bringing people in. I, I'm not about stopping a profession from moving in that may provide access to care and expand access to competition. I'm all about those things. But I think the basic principle here is fair and free market. And there's a word there that's important, fair, <laughs> right? And so if only one group of the two people competing can get to utilize an additional assistant, that's not fair. That's not the free market in action. Barriers should be removed for both to utilize an assistant if we're competing on a level playing field. And I know mm -hmm. that uh, a level playing field is a great set of words in politics and it's not reality half the time. But the truth of the matter is in the free market, it should be. Uh, you know, that's, that's how everybody wins. That's how facilities win. That's how patients win. And that's how the system and CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists and anesthesia providers win. And in Utah, what we saw was a very um, straightforward political move a lot of involvement of people who are related to other people within the legislature, nothing we haven't ever seen before, I'm sure. And the end result was the physician anesthesiologists were able to get this assistant that could help them create more work, more generate more revenue, but the CRNAs are not allowed to utilize that provider. And that's just unfair. I mean, if you think about it from a very simple perspective, if you had a carpenter making four chairs and the government gave him a magical tool that could make four chairs at the same time, and the other carpenter wasn't allowed to have that magical tool, could only make one chair at a time, there's not a soul who's about the free market or you know, falls down libertarian or conservative principles that would say that that's okay for the federal government to do that. But that's exactly what happened in Utah. And so the only difference is there are anesthesiologist assistants and not specialized tools. And that's why those things are, are wrong and not based in free market principles. I'll invite them into my state. I'd, I'd help write the bill as long as I get to and supervise them as I well. Think Right. And so and so that's where Brooklyn, when we talk about um, what happened in Utah, you know, when other people take a listen and they, you know, if, if they see this um, anesthesiologist assistant um, piece come across their desk when they're looking at legislation, uh, you know, over the next legislative session. The thing of it is, is what Mike was saying about how, you know, when you think about them being anti-competitive, I go when you are still using like what we talked about earlier a state state sanctioned opportunities to restrict your competition one so we're going to use you know rules regulations either in you know healthcare authorities or state statute to restrict our competition and then we want to add in this magical hammer to allow us to uh, compete even better it widens that gap because we're still competing in that same marketplace so really to me is it's like allow us both to supervise this assistant because really CRNAs and anesthesiologists, you know, we, from the beginning, 
are both providing the same service. It's just when I do it, it's the practice of nursing. When they do it, it's the practice of medicine back. I mean, from, from the very beginning, you know? And so one of the things that we did in Utah is, um, you know, some of the time you talked about adding amendments and, um, you know, ultimately anesthesiologist assistants, that, that piece of legislation passed there. Um, I look at it and I go, the solution to this problem to remove that anti-competitive nature of what they are is allow CRNAs to supervise them because, you know, CRNAs are out in the rural areas. They allow more providers to go all over the country. Well, if we can supervise these providers, you have more anesthesia providers. You would not have as many anesthesia deserts across the country. You would be able to have more people in more places. Um, my thing is we got to just get more people providing more anesthesia care in more places, but we need to do it when it's fair and we can't have um, regulations and laws restricting one profession while we're trying to uh, have an anti-competitive uh, tool come in for the other one. That's how I look at it. So. Brooklyn, any other follow-up questions or other areas you want to explore? Um, not that I can think of. Were there any other areas that you guys wanted to hit? Well, I would say the one thing I did want to mention was this concept of the opt-out, because I think it becomes very confusing. Uh, it is brought up a lot to state legislators and to make sure that they do understand that it is a gubernatorial action only, um, it actually currently is in place for all 50 states through, like I said, President Trump did it as his first, uh, one of his first um, executive orders during COVID in April of 2020. Right now, all 50 states and all it is, is a, it's a billing issue, really. It just, it's the conditions of participation for hospitals to be able to, you know, bill Medicare Part A. Um you know, they talk about it being the safety rule, but it's currently in place for all 50 states. It has been for uh, two years. We saw Michigan make it permanent two days ago for their state. Uh, Oklahoma and Arizona were the other two most recent states that made it permanent. Governor Ducey and Governor Stitt signed permanent opt-outs for their states in the middle of the pandemic because they go, you know what, we know that if we don't lower safety standards in a pandemic, we remove red tape, things that hinder access to care, things that make tie the hands of our healthcare providers. So they made it permanent for our states during the pandemic. So we have 20 states right now um, that have opt out, actually 21. Yeah. And so, you know, the rest of the country is still currently under it. Um, I look at it and I go, I think it is a confusing issue that people think that it is a safety issue. It has nothing to do with safety because CRNAs are not required to be supervised to bill Medicare Part B, which is the provider fee. But really, none of this matters for state legislators. These are gubernatorial actions. It is a waiver. It doesn't change state law. You know, you think about it. Um, we see this a lot. Uh, a lot of governors will send opt-outs and then there's this big retaliation thing saying that, oh, you've undone state law that all these state legislators have worked so hard to put in place. If a governor could, with a stroke of a pen, undo state law, then government would cease to exist, right? You know, I'm a lover of history and government. We know that that's not possible. Really, you know, what I hope to communicate to your members is to understand what opt-down is. It's just a waiver, an email, government send to CMS, their uh, secretary, and say, 
we don't want to require supervision for CRNAs for our hospitals as a condition of participation for Medicare Part A for billing for like yeah. the ventilators, the drugs that they order, um, the equipment, the facility fee. Whereas like the provider fee doesn't require supervision. It's a confusing issue, but I think when you look at it like yeah. that, um, it gets muddied. And so just to remember that when you hear the word opt out, it has nothing to do with state legislatures. Only a governor can do it. And right now it doesn't matter because the entire country has been under it since April of 2020. And, uh, no matter what, you're, you're, you have it whether you like it or not. So you might as well ask well, your governor to do it because it's been in place anyways. <laughs> and let me add something it, there. You know, like, why, yeah. why does it matter? That's, that's what people want to know. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to your state? Why does it matter to your hospital? Why does it matter to your governor? Why does it matter to your patients, right? And the fact of the matter mm -hmm. is it matters because of competition. Here in Arizona, we removed uh, the opt-out requirement, and within a year, multiple hospitals started utilizing collaborative models where it's CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists doing their own cases in their own rooms, not someone sitting in an office while four people do all the work and bill, right? And what that resulted in was a removal of one simple thing, perception. We all know perception is reality. When you say the word supervision, even though it's meaningless in the Medicare guidelines for states that haven't opted out, if I'm the guy who worked at McDonald's and and I did something wrong, my supervisor gets in trouble for it. That's the general consensus of what supervision means, right? It doesn't in this case, but it doesn't matter. Perception is reality. When we opt right. out, we remove that perception, we remove that evil word, and what you end up, up with is hospitals not being afraid, surgeons not being afraid, competition flourishing, right? So then right. now we're competing contract for contract with other groups and lowering costs, expanding access because competition flourishes. It, it, it's just bottom line deregulation, right? That, that, that you know it, that's been overregulated in the first place. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny now that you say that. Most people don't realize that in the majority of settings, CRNAs are not being supervised by anesthesiologists. They're being supervised by surgeons if that supervision is required, anyways. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that the non all CRNAs work independently, effectively in every state in the country. The only thing is, is that CMS may require you to be supervised. It's literally the surgeon. If there's no physician anesthesiologist there. The surgeon just writes anesthesia by CRNA, and that meets the supervision requirements. So it's effectively meaningless. But the mm -hmm. word supervision is really what triggers people. And when you say that, mm -hmm. you know, our detractors would then say, well, if you're supervising them, you're liable for them. There's a safety issue. None of that's true. But it's easier to remove the word than to get into the weeds, trying to explain that to a hospital administrator that just wants to know how this helps his bottom line. You know, that's that's yeah. the reality. Yeah. Healthcare. It's very it's very interesting. But when you look at the GDP and how much of it is, you know, it's it's one of those major issues that's going to be at the forefront, I think, in every uh, policymaker's mind coming forward, especially with our aging population. That's going to be overwhelming the system here over the next 10 years. And, you know, and the nursing shortage is only going to get greater. And so I think it's really important and very good and, and you know we really appreciate you all having us on here because it's going to take a lot of people coming together and coming up with ideas um 
and having conversations like this to figure out how we as a community can solve these complex problems moving forward and making sure that people receive the healthcare that they need from rural America to urban centers, to our veterans, to our military, to our aging population. And so this was a very important conversation. We really do thank you all for your time. Well, thank you for joining us across the state. It's been a pleasure to have you both on. Before we uh, head on out, um, what, how can our listeners get involved or learn more um, outside of just the podcast here today? What are some resources for them, whether it be links, websites, um, you know, ways they can find out more about this issue and ways that they can perhaps even start getting some, getting their own, getting involved themselves in raising awareness and pushing for their state lawmakers to take action? Nope. Well, the first place to go is probably the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology website, the AANA.com. That's a very primary resource. But outside of that, within your state, the next thing to do is have a conversation with your hospital associations, with your uh, CRNA state associations, like the you know Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthesiology, where I am, and we can help direct people to more information to expand you know, that uh, roll and deregulate. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So there's lots of opportunity out there to learn more. And, uh, you know, Google's always your friend, mm-hmm. but be careful what you see. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and too, you know, all 50 states has a state association for nurse anesthetists. And so, you know, if you're in Oklahoma, you know, you have the Oklahoma Association, just like you said, with Arizona. And so we have, you know, over 60,000 CRNAs found in all 50 states. And there is a state association. They probably every single one of them has a state website. We like you said, we have the AANA website. Um, there are lots of different resources. Um, there's an, uh, you know, CRNA safe is a great resource. If you, uh, if you remember, just want to look at crnasafe.com, that has uh, some uh, good resources on there. But they can also contact, honestly, Mike McKinnon or myself, uh, an email. Um, I'm sure you can link it into the podcast with our contact information because Mike and I love to make ourselves available to anyone who wants to talk about nurse anesthetists, nurse anesthesiologists. So please use us. I would just volunteered you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and Brooklyn, any last things before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. Well, Mike, uh, Jenny, thank you for joining us here in Across the States. This has been a pleasure, and it's been a great time talking with you guys and learning about this important issue. I've been looking forward to it for some time now, and I'm glad we were finally able to sit down and discuss this in depth. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thanks. Great to see you guys.